Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast, where our goal is to make politics more accessible and less intimidating. The show features an interview with an expert in the political field, walking us through the many cues we have about politics, civics, government, and more. By providing civic education in the places we are, on our phones, and in the language we speak. And yes, we know, we say like a lot. It's kind of the point, because politics needed a rebrand. Um, early in the morning for me, but I'm, I'm honestly got a decent amount of energy just given, given the world we're living in at the moment. How are you feeling? Um, exhausted and puffy. That is how I'm feeling. Cause we know that I am a kind of an insomniac, but more than that, like I just election nights to me are kind of like my Super Bowl, mm-hmm. and. I just, I can't, putting myself to sleep, like, I think I went to sleep at, like, 2.33, something like that, and I, like, really, I had to force myself You to went to bed, bed earlier than Brian. I saw Brian was up I know, it was at 3.30. Or probably later. And then I saw that he woke up at a normal hour, too. I'm no, like, and then I was, like, walking okay? around, I was, like, sir, yeah. and he was, like, so chipper. I was, like, either you are really, you are putting the face on right now or, like, when filming or not, but I just, I mean, look, I'm... I'm not even in a bad mood. I'm just tired. Do you see how puffy my face is? Puff. You look great. Puff master. But what I will say is that we were right. Oh, we were right. Yeah, that young voters were going to fucking turn out. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And then also, all of those pundits don't know what the fuck they're talking about. Oh, no. You guys. We do. We do. And again. Things are still up in the air at this moment. Republicans could take the House and the Senate. But what we do know is that it was nowhere near what polls were saying, what pundits were saying. And we said that the other day in Top Stories. Yeah. Go listen. And we were just ranting about how, per usual, these pundits and polls are underestimating, undervaluing, and writing off young people and women. Totally. And, and thinking that 
taking a fundamental right away from half of the population isn't enough to change historical trends of what midterms do or whatever it is, whatever the status quo of what these pundits expect to happen, they it doesn't it seem obvious that it's, taking away a fundamental right yeah. of half the population wouldn't change things? Like and it's just such an ode to how people don't listen to women. They don't listen to women's pain. They don't listen to women's like concerns. And we fucking showed them. And again, there's still things to be sh- to be well, seen here. But... I think on so many so many levels because they're like even watching this coverage throughout throughout the night. There were first of all so many moments of surprise to people that shouldn't have been surprised mm-hmm. in my opinion. But yep. not just that; it was still the conversation of like, well, the polling was talking about inflation and the totally. economy, or- and I was like, and. I'm not saying that those aren't important issues or those aren't issues on someone's list, but even then the the polling they're referring to, they're like, well, abortion was then the second issue. I'm like, well, if you came to Girl on the Gov and you looked at mm-hmm. us doing our own mini polling, which I know is is different, whatever, but still s- s- sample size. It's asking I mean, what is the most important issue to you yeah. this election cycle? Ninety percent of those answers, which we had pages and pages of, abortion and climate change. But also, it's just about entering these spaces where young people are. Like, right. get onto social media and use it as a new polling tool because, I mean, I feel it even sometimes, like, with my parents. are like, what do you think is going to happen? I'm like, well, I'm in these spaces where young people are, and it's looking really good because of the energy that we're seeing in the spaces where young people are. And they need to reinvent. They need to, like, just reinvent the way that they do this research. And it's just so... Frustrating. And the other totally. thing, just in the coverage last totally night. Wrong. Yeah. And in the coverage last night, the all the analysts and the way that they literally said the youth vote maybe f- four total times. Right. And my, my dad also said that Van Jones said it on CNN. So I was like, okay, tick, we'll add that to the to the list. Right. Fox News also said it, by the way. And said the youth vote did this but the, all the analysts at least when we were what we were both watching msnbc were talking yeah. about this is trump like trump's messaging isn't getting through it's not as powerful as we thought which is also true which is i've also been right. saying forever but it's but not the core of it it's, it's not the core oh, not of it the and they're still it. finding all these other reasons for why this is happening and it's like it's right in front of and your fucking face you like, know what like some of the number one proof to that is in my head I mean, there's so much of it, but the number one thing is these abortion ballot propositions. You Mm -hmm. have right now some MSNBC called it, but I've seen some others saying that they're still calculating. But with Kentucky and Montana, which both had a right, but like this is, but okay, Vermont. If that didn't pass in Vermont, in California, yeah, right. But my point is, is like you have people in Kentucky, just similar to Kansas, which is traditionally a red state that showed up and most likely voted Republican on their ticket mm-hmm. and then voted against this abortion ban, which would have basically said that you have no right to an abortion in the state constitution of Kentucky. Right. And Montana's is like more nuanced. Vermont, California, Michigan, Michigan, which was huge Michigan. Right. Shout out to Michigan for fucking, well, we've been, you know, covering this. We covered their, you know, how they got this on the ballot. We have an episode about it. Go listen. But they passed it. It's fucking epic. Kentucky and Montana, yeah. five different states. They all, they all pass. Other historic wins we have on here. That we just want to shout out. 
Yes. We have so many historic ones. There are actually, I mean, this is, guys, tip of the iceberg. I literally did say this in Top Stories too, that no matter what happened in terms of like House versus Senate, et cetera, we are going to see some really amazing strides for candidates and have some amazing people in office. And I stand by that. Anyways, some of these historic wins, Maura Healy was elected as the first out openly lesbian governor of Massachusetts. Wes Moore elected as the first black governor of Maryland. Mm -hmm. Like, okay. We have our first congresswoman in Vermont, which is also wild because Vermont, like it just, the math wasn't mathing, but we're happy that the math finally mathed. Regardless, as we were saying, voters defended abortion rights in all of the states with the relevant ballot measures. So, hello. Maryland legalized weed. D.C. closed the minimum wage loophole. Our friend Jeff Jackson won his congressional seat in North Carolina. Spanberger and Weston held their seats, which the Republicans were eyeing three congressional seats in Virginia, and they only won one. So, sorry. Our friend Wiley Nickel also beat Bo Hines, who is a Madison Cawthorn wannabe mm-hmm. in North Carolina. So he is going to Congress, guys. We also have Maxwell Frost, who is going to Congress in Florida. We'll talk about Florida more that in a second. literally um, makes me want to cry. Like, that like, is so fucking cool. We have a Gen Z 25-year-old 25. going to Congress. I Huge. Beyond. Beyond huge. Okay, no, let's I'm talk sure about Florida easily. for a hot second. And this was some of... This is some regurgitated talking points a little bit, yeah. but I also do really really think it's interesting and it definitely I believe resonated. It, yeah where they're blanking well, who it was but one of the MSNBC pundits was saying how like this red wave not red wave but specific to florida we'll give that a red wave everything else is not a red wave but in that context like it makes a lot of sense because one the democrats are typically pretty disorganized there which also cure ken russell episode go mm-hmm. listen to that But in addition to that, the people that have been moving to Florida in the last few years since the pandemic are red voters. Like, they're moving to Florida because of the particular tax breaks. They're moving to Florida because of lack of, like, exactly, for the politics, the no mask restrictions during COVID, things like that. And so it's their red base is only, totally, it's only getting bigger, period. So I do think from an investment standpoint, the Dems need to get real serious about the fact that, like, the fight's still a fight, but like the investment at this point should not be made until they reorganize from the base and ground up. Mm-hmm. And what we mean by that is you need to be having and recruiting candidates at the school board, school board level, city council level, at the state legislature level, and bringing these people up. Because if you look at some of the North Carolina candidates that won that it for congressional seats, well, guess what? They were in the state house first. Mm-hmm. That's the recruiting, and that is for the and like Republican Florida. success in Florida is that they do that. Totally. They they are good at building that political power in candidates across the state, and they end up it ends up paying off for them. But yeah, basically the message there was like we spend so much money, so much effort trying to flip Florida. We always do, but totally. there are so many states that are shifting and that are so winnable and so flippable, aka um, North Carolina. Yeah, and. They don't put the money there and Sherry Beasley barely loses. And that would have been a huge pickup. Whereas like Florida literally ended up being a state like Texas, crazy, that just immediately was called when results came out. Like there wasn't even there wasn't even a minute to be like right now in the count. And I'm a fan of Charlie Chris. We have her on the show. Still get to know his background, whatever. Listen to the episode. But he's behind 19 points, 19 percentage points. Right. Which is crazy because he at one point too was pulling up one. 
But like, yeah, it's just it's just interesting. But speaking of, however, I- Ron DeSantis, we do go on. I know because we have like, so we, much to say. We have so, so much to say in so little time. So I'm just trying to. We'll break this down probably next week in top stories. We'll do a full run through, but we just like so many feels. We have a full like document full of notes. It's fine. Trump and his run for the White House. It's not looking good for him at this point. Last week he was ready to announce. He basically did announce, and was expecting all of these candidates that he endorsed. We've talked about it all year. How his hands have been in all of these races, endorsing people, and. It's been the real test of the Republican Party being like, are these Trump candidates going to win? Is the Trump messaging going to win? And it clearly has not, which is something we have also been saying nonstop of like this base isn't as big and as powerful as people think they are. And Republicans need to grow some fucking balls and start standing up against the MAGA vibes. With that aside, we don't know if Trump's going to run. Knowing his ego, he probably still will. But anyways, his... um, Trump said on DeSantis, I saw this, there's a quote, he said, if he, this is Trump on DeSantis, if he did run, I will tell you things about him oh, that will I not saw. be flattering. I know more about him than anybody other than perhaps his wife, who is really running his campaign. So he's like okay, just preparing like for a bloodbath. <laughs> <laughs> but again, I, this is also just interesting because he is also going to be in a criminal investigation most likely for the next year or two it's just gonna be interesting to see what happened but again if i could bet on anybody with all the odds stacked against him and everybody telling him don't run don't he'll run do it. He'll, he'll do it, it. he doesn't and it's gonna be an interesting republican primary i'll tell you that but that is true i also sorry to shift away from trump but i i want to make like a not a proclamation but like a bit of like a positive an excitement so looking at like some of these spreads at so, like some of these races, obviously the numbers are still coming on, coming in even for races that have been called. But like some of these states that have been so red, so red in the past, the numbers are a lot closer for blue candidates than I could ever even imagine. And like totally. Arkansas, great example of that. I've been looking at the returns between Arkansas, Chris Jones guys. and Sarah Huckabee, who er, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who to me is a horror show. But regardless, this race while he did not win like i can't believe how many votes he did get these these spreads aren't that crazy and i think that young voters turning out this next like 2024 and 2026 and all these elections to come we're gonna see some states that you would never even expect to be blue turn blue about to fucking lose is she really i know three percent reported and he's up 50.6 50.6 to 49.4. I mean, hey, fun. still a toss up. But listen, that's crazy. So it's just like, it's true. Like, keep like, the faith. Keep the faith. Because the I, faith. this is one of the, the things I wanted to get to of that is, like, first of all, as young voters, we've seen, and young women voters, what change we can make with this election thus far. Those spreads are a good example of that. And that's called building power. That's building change. Mm-hmm. Like Maddie always says, like I always say, politics a is a long game it's game. not a short game do not lose the faith we had some dms last night from some peeps in well, i have some peeps in a in a decade but anyways in some red states feeling really discouraged and i just want to say like do not lose the faith we have to keep going we have to keep fighting we have so much work to do and it's possible there are places where this is possible it is so unreal like looking no, at some of these numbers i it really what's is crazy is that literally all the odds, again, stacked against Democrats and 
the the numbers like we've said have been so impressive there's going to be some upsets which were totally unexpected but regardless of that the races that republicans are still winning and still holding came so close and nobody expected that and again that's because of young people that's because of women and that again cannot be slept on but the other thing is that first of all we know midterms historically the president's party does shitty we are proving that wrong that's huge that's only happened like twice in the history of this country one of them was like right after 9-11 which is like makes sense those are the type of times we're living in and the other thing is gerrymandering the gerrymandering that happened this year is was enough to completely give democrats this red wave that they needed and we're literally even battling against these heavily gerrymandered districts and and if those gerrymandered districts didn't exist or weren't drawn that way the uh, it would literally be a blue wave like if there wasn't such oppressive gerrymandering and these districts drawn this way it would be a completely different story democrats would 100 percent keep the house and the senate or not that the senate matters but the house 100 percent if there if this gerrymandering wasn't as aggressive as it was so sorry i'm sorry i got a bug yeah but republicans wouldn't even be a slight favorite to win the house control Um, if they weren't able to gerrymander the way that they did so that's a huge to that point, that's why some of these spreads with these governor's races in red states are closer than you could ever think. Mm-hmm. And I'm not like it's because statewide races aren't impacted by gerrymandering necessarily. Like they might be impacted, therefore, by a voter turnout because people feel so disenfranchised and then therefore don't turn out, realizing they can have an impact. But statewide races don't have that yeah. impact. And it goes to show that those races, those are more bellwether than the actual district races because they're so gerrymandered. It's not a real representation of like how people in that state actually feel. Yeah. Well, I think we need to get into this episode so. given the time. We will, we have, again, <clears throat> a lot of results to still get. So there will be tons more election, post-election talk and the top stories episode of next week will be all about that for sure we might even bring a special guest in if we can but let's introduce our guest for today yes we are super guys like we okay so first of all we recorded this episode a few weeks ago and we were waiting to release it specifically today because this person this amazing person is all about the news and covering what's going on so we're like okay you guys are going to listen to this episode and then you are going to go over to under the desk news and tune in, get that election for one coverage, and also just general political news, other news, and whatnot. So our friend V Spear is the TikTok news anchor of Under the Desk News, and also podcast host of Be Interesting with V Spear. So obviously, in the news, in the news, mm-hmm. and also V was just at the White House twice, twice. Yep. So twice. we talk about that. We talk about social media and how that has changed, how we learn about things, also how we activate in the world of politics. We talk about literally everything under the sun in terms of the crossover between politics, social media, and news. So we're going to get into it. Without further ado, here's V. You are the host of Under the Desk News, which, first of all, one of my favorite accounts on TikTok. Big fan. Second of all is, it's one of those funny things where it's a compliment of my comfort creator 
like niche, if you will. And then also at the same time, like one where I get a lot of information and the people got to know, like, how did this get started mm -hmm. for you? What was the inspiration? Also, of course, why are we under a desk? I mean, tell us <laughs> this yeah. So under the desk news, it's a, I do the news every single night at 7 PM. Sometimes I'll slack off on Saturdays and Sundays. If I think the news has been particularly horrible during the week and people need a little break, but the idea is to take what happened in that day. I think, you know, cable news or even newspapers, they're telling you a longer story about like what happened, what it means, who all the players are. There's a lot of detail there. My goal with under the desk news is to just make you conversational so that you could participate if you overhear something at work or if you're at a dinner table with your friends and family and you want to know what's going on. Mm -hmm. And I tend to focus on what happened, not what's going to happen, not what might happen, not what happened four weeks ago. And so I think people really like it because it's a good, fast check-in. It's accurate. I'm particular about the stuff that I select being things that you probably haven't heard 15 times already that day. Mm -hmm. uh, and I always try to throw people something that no one else maybe knows yet. So something about something cool that happened in science or with an animal or international, because the goal, again, is just to make you conversational and more interesting and hopefully spark some curiosity. If you hear something you like to be like, wait a minute, I want to learn more about that. Mm -hmm, totally. Well, can you tell us a little bit more about this like brand, too, that you built around it of yeah. being under the desk? Like what what is the premise there? So I didn't even know I was building a brand when I started doing it. You know, like most people who started yeah. on TikTok, it was early pandemic times. We were all trying to entertain ourselves and each other and just find ways to connect. And I had started the account as a culinary account. Prior to being a TikToker, I worked as the director of impact for the James Beard Foundation. And I spent most of my career in food equity programming and in food in general, like fine dining. So when the pandemic came, I was trying, a lot of my friends were, making culinary content and showing people how to like cook what they had in their fridges and like goofy stuff, family meals or, or meals for one or meals for isolation. And they were the ones who really encouraged me to get on TikTok. So at first I was teaching chefs how to file for PPP loans while making hamburgers. Cause I was like, okay, if I could like get Epic. them to watch the hamburger yeah. or get them to watch me make one of my very good friends from high school is actually pretty high up at the Bacardi company. Mm -hmm. And she had sent me Dolly Parton ice cubes from Nashville to make like nice. fun content. So I was making like fun cocktails I and I was it. teaching people about PPP and EIDL loans and how to negotiate with your landlord for like pandemic relief and whatnot. Mm -hmm. so and so smart. that was the beginning of it. And then I switched to doing the news right around the time the election really started heating up. We were getting pretty close. I started covering the debates. People really liked that. And it just felt like a good time to try and bring a little bit of fun to the really terrible information that we were being delivered yeah. from the news. Mm -hmm. We also need more information on these Dolly Parton yes. situations. <laughs> Excuse me. We are huge Dolly fans. So oh, you're going to love this. Yeah, if, there's a, if there's a link, I don't know. There you is. Know, the <laughs> so I... Before, before that career, I, like all folks who want to end up in restaurants and food service, ha had gone to school for theater. And I actually worked for Dolly Parton, one of my first jobs after theater school. Stop it. I swear to God. Yeah. Oh my God. So, How does that happen? We are a Dolly How Parton stand Again, podcast. on accident. On a, again, on accident. It was my birthday. If you live in New York City and you audition, you know you go to like Ripley Greer or Pearl Studios. And I was at Ripley Greer doing an audition for something else. 
And there was a sign on the door that said like singers, dancers, actors, whatever. And I was like, well, let me see if I should sign up for this audition. And I opened the door. It was Dolly Parton's team and everybody being like, uh, and I didn't have music or anything. And basically they were like, well, you owe us a song. She interrupted us. So I sang Bobby McGee just like off, just like off the top of my head. And I got, I booked the gig. So I booked Christmas in the Smokies and babes in toyland at dollywood which dolly was in so we were in the show with her for christmas which was really fun amazing yeah she's fantastic fantastic to work for everything you think about dolly it's a thousand times better she's just wonderful wonderful person we talk about her pretty regularly on the show yes (laughs) i was like we're our dolly stan podcast so absolutely love this and she's sticker that i have in my desk (laughs) there you go oh science she haven't used it in content yet but she will be coming out at some point for Perhaps all, for this episode. Any and all content ideas. I mean, yeah. some people is. will say to me, you know, you're so bipartisan or you're non-biased or whatever. And it's not on purpose. This is just actually like how I feel and thinking what I think is interesting. And not to compare myself to Dolly, but Dolly says I'm not political, even mm-hmm. though she does a lot of political stuff. Right? right. She's very pro-science. She's very pro-women's rights and liberation, very pro-gay rights, very pro-family. And it's it's interesting. It is. Know? And well, all the cowboys got guns in the show. So I guess it's pro Second Amendment, too. You never know. There you go. I mean, you can do it all, I guess. But well, let's get into that, too, because, you know, you talk about how, you know, you pride yourself on being bipartisan or just non-biased or just kind of like yeah. stripping away a lot of the kind of political BS that yeah. everyone's low-key just sick of. And it just makes us think, too, about, you know, filling some of these market gaps in the you know news media industry and the political industry like how do you feel like the content you make in under the desk news has been filling or missing kind of filling this missing hole in the news like what do you think that it's fulfilling so i think hasn't been there you know we just talked about the places and the people that have made us feel like we do belong in the way that we act there and i think that the news media and politics is a place that people feel like they don't belong and they haven't been welcomed to in a lot of ways, and myself included. I didn't right. feel necessarily totally welcomed to politics or news. And when I worked in Washington, D.C., I worked as a high-end caterer, and you're doing a lot of politics, and you're in all of these butler pantries just on the other side of the wall, hearing the way they talk about stuff and do Gosh. stuff. EFT. But I also catered the 2012 RNC for Mitt Romney down in Tampa. And you see so much at these conventions. It's a great look from a voyeur's perspective into how the news and politics interact and how they make sense and don't make sense together and how one feeds the other's monster. Mm-hmm. Because you would see like Hannity and Jake Tapper in the same line at the CNN grill run by Danny Myers, right? And they're like, hi, whatever. But then yeah. they go on TV and tear each other apart. But in person, there wasn't the same kind of like fire and brimstone that we see on TV. Mm. And that was the first time I really kind of saw that. I was like, oh, they're just people. They're actually just Mm. rather polite to who's in line ahead of them getting their lunch, right? Like, because they're normal people. Mm -hmm. And with politics, seeing behind the scenes at these dinner parties of both sides of the aisle, it's, it's similar. What they want in the end is different, but their passion for wanting that thing is similar and that's human. And so it trained me to say like, okay, why are these people doing this thing? And it's not because one side is good and one side is bad. It's because they believe they are on a soul's mission to do one thing or another. So I guess if we're going to take a topic, let's take government spending. The Democrats 
tend to more frequently believe that the, the government has a responsibility to spend money on its people and on support services, things like Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, homeless services, health campaigns, stuff like that. They want free children's daycare, da da da, da. Well, my experience on the other side being in these rooms is that Republicans think the way that we get to better people is through stronger business. And that if we give the money to the corporations, they'll give it to the people, which, of course, is like Reagan trickle down economics. But when you take the like, well, they don't want to help old people because they hate them. Right. It's like, no, they don't want to spend on Medicare because they think if it was private, somehow people would have better services and it would cost less. Now, all the economics will tell you that that's not true, but that doesn't mean that that's not what they truly believe in their heart of hearts. Everybody who's in politics believes that they're right and they're good. And so I think that's maybe from catering, I learned to not see things as partisan issues so much as what's motivating them. And then if you could figure out the motivation, you could figure out if that's good faith or bad faith motivation. And then sometimes you could take things from one side or the other that you might not think you align with, but make sense from time to time. And I think we used to do a lot more of that before the 2016 election. Yeah, well, that's actually brings up like a good question about like authenticity and yeah. how politicians, how news media, you know, talking heads essentially represent themselves. Like from that experience, do you feel like people are pretty much like who they are in, you know, how they present each other? present themselves in public or do you feel like there's a lot of smoke and mirrors like did you see a lot of like sort of two sides of the coin with certain people or you know i don't know what what happens in these kitchens but like mm -hmm. now i mean sign me up yeah, because i'm telling you, gossip and i am a sleuth so sign <laughs> me up but nonetheless like do you feel like it was like one of those situations where really like people are just representing themselves in two totally different ways or they don't believe what they're saying or they or it's the opposite they really are super connected to the value that they put out there. So going back again to 2012 to talk about the Republicans for a minute, because I think that this is the side that folks are going to think I'm not on or something. Right. So I'm in the kitchen and we don't have a server for one of the buffets. OK. And so I'm going to like jump in as the event designer because you have to do everything when you're an event designer. Right. So you have to. So I'm going to go serve. And the at that time, governor of Georgia did not want me to be on this like visual, visual side of this party. And it was like, I look like I look now. And Rick Perry, like body checked him. It was like, well, if you're not going to eat, I am. I don't care who's serving it. And do you want to see my boots? They have 9-11 on them. And I was like, OK, Mr. Perry, like. And he was really funny. And I felt like yeah. he stuck up for me in this like moment of yeah, like yeah. where he didn't have to. I mean, and so I think some things like that you see from people when they're in a social experience that's not in front of it's not in the house right on TV yeah. for politicking. And there are some people who are just as bad as you think they are. Mm -hmm. There were parties that I did for. Different foundations, I'm sure we can guess them. I don't want to give them in case I'm still on some NDAs. I don't know about. <laughs> that I knew I had to have an all male staff for because I wasn't the things they were going to be talking about were going to be affecting women's rights so gravely that I didn't want to put women in that particular oh, wow. way. Right. In that situation where you have to serve these tables where they're talking about this thing that is questioning your right to a number of access points. And I was in my early 20s when I did that. Would I do, do that now? I have enough power to not take that party now. But when right. you're a working class person, you don't always get to just say, well, I'm not going to that. Like you have right. to do and hear a lot of stuff that is deeply uncomfortable for you. Totally. 
So there's a lot of times where I was surprised by somebody. It's former Speaker of the House. John Boehner is another one. He's so nice. He's like the nicest man. And he hated being on the floor and he hated everyone in his party. At least that was my take on it from the way yeah. he would talk he in the, in the party like tent. He'd come do. back there and eat magic bar cookies and talk about how stupid everybody was and smoke a million cigarettes. Oh, my God. And then, you know, Nancy Pelosi was rude to me at a cocktail party once. And I've talked about it a lot. But, you know, she was hosting a party and she was stressed out. And like, so she was rude to me. So yeah. I've held it against her ever since. But Yeah, that's fair. That's I also, so it depends. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I also am just curious, too. I mean, it's interesting also to look at the time difference, too, and how Mm -hmm. 2012, such a different political environment even than it is now. And I'm, you know, wonder what the behind the scenes are like now these days, because it's also like, I feel like back to your point about, you know, traditional Republican values versus traditional Democratic values and how people really want those things in their heart of hearts. And I'm like, I personally looking at it feel like that's maybe changed these days. And it's all this kind of political game. And uh, yeah, I'm just so curious what the environment is now if you were to step into those spaces, if it's, you know, the same kind of dynamics. Well, you know who changed it is Newt Gingrich. Newt Mm. Gingrich and if we're going to look at where we are now, we do have to look at where we were 10 years ago, because that was really such a pivotal turning point going into, you know, Barack Obama's second term, right. the right before that. Newt Gingrich really like pioneered this idea of non-compromise, of hard no, of mm. if they if they're for it, I'm just against it. I won't even hear it. Right. And at the time had the power to kind of put this idea of obstruction at all costs forward. And then you saw that kind of like followed up with the Tea Party stuff and the early Ted cruising. And a lot of people were like, thought that was annoying. And they were like, that's not actually how we want to be. That's not going to get us anywhere we want to go. And that's why Newt didn't get voted in after a while anymore. But yeah, then I kind of got reaffirmed with Trump. Then it got reaffirmed because the Tea Party convinced the establishment Republicans that the Tea Party was actually speaking for the, remember the vocal minority, mm-hmm. the vocal majority or silent majority. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a Tea Party thing where they were convincing people that, well, it, that, it might not seem like that's what everybody wants, but that's what our polls say. And that's what everybody wants is this really hard line, extremely theocratic, non-compromising, bordering on hateful us versus them stuff. And, you know, they had just lost the election. Mitt Romney did lose to Obama. So they thought, well, shit, maybe we didn't do the right messaging. Maybe we didn't, you know, rally people up enough because we lost. And and my look, if you want, from the from the butler's pantry is like Barack Obama did a great job in his first term. He was the incumbent president. He the odds were in his favor and he had deserved that favor. He had done a lot of really great stuff. The country was recovering from recession. There was just a lot behind him that made him a really compelling candidate. And if Mitt Romney had waited another four years, maybe he would have won. But he nobody was going to beat Barack, truly, across the board. And people knew that. Mm-hmm. But this more extremist side of the party was able to say, no, you lost because you weren't listening to the silent majority. Mm-hmm. But and now it's a little bit messed up. And then, of course, you know, came Trump after that. And right. Right. That's interesting. And that also proved to them that it worked, right? Because he won when they went more extreme. But did it work for humanity? And now they're continuing to go with that same. That's what's also crazy. We talk about this a lot is how like Trump, though, then lost first term president, lost. But we see a lot of the GOP still taking his messaging and 
policy or whatever, you know, his approach and still implementing it. And it seems to not be working again. And so we're always just like, what what is the strategy here? Yeah, what works on paper doesn't always work in practice. And there are like even when people will say like, well, I'm a I'm fiscally conservative, socially liberal. That doesn't actually like mean anything. You can't do anything with that. Yeah. So when you win on that and then you can't do it, like you actually have to be lib- you have to be socially conservative also. Mm. They they only work together. They don't work apart. And people don't like that, right? Because yeah. now we're taking stuff away. So then people don't like it. So then they feel like you're too extreme and then you wrote it out. So I think we just saw like such a wonky, chaotic last 10 years of like the ways that things went, like earned mm-hmm. popularity and then like forced popularity. I mean, yeah. having Hillary, this could be a whole podcast. Was Hillary the right candidate? Was it the right time? Was it that, you know, was there too yeah. much trouble? If it was a different uh, candidate, would that have changed things? I can tell you, because again, catering, Trump did not think he was going to win that night. There wasn't like a lot planned for a win necessarily. And it wasn't even necessarily about winning. It was about the movement, right? It was about starting this sort of like discourse at the yeah. at, and chaos. It wasn't about winning. Hillary definitely did think she was going to win. I'm very glad that that got handled as well as it did. And she wasn't at the Javits Center when those results came in with that stage, with the podium right at DC and the white and uh, would have been such a beautiful moment for any woman who would have been elected, her politics aside. But yeah, yeah, I think it it was it's just been like a weird time because it was like it feels like directionless in a lot of ways. I think that's a great opportunity for young politicians. And it's been a great opportunity for young news folks and pundits on TikTok mm-hmm. and whatnot to say, like, y'all don't actually kind of you're not giving me you know what you're talking about. You're not giving me direction here. Yeah. So we're going to start a new direction or we're going to start our own channels. And with the democratization of the Internet and the ability to communicate, we can kind of step outside of, you know, Traditional. what has been legacy boomer politics and and say like okay you know what actually this generation has a much higher sense of emotional intelligence they are more firsthand involved in seeing the effects of climate change we haven't had that patriotic moment like we did for 911 for this generation so they're not as driven by like we got to do it for the troops right mm-hmm. they're all those things that worked before that's so true they don't exist anymore yeah so right. that i think that's why we're seeing such a separation of legacy and new and I think new is smoke and legacy in a lot of ways, just because 100%. it just makes more sense. It's more common sense. Yeah. So well, I, I kind of have. I was going to say, moral of this story is oh. also give political caterers uplift voices of political oh, yes. caterers in DC. I mean, yeah, you want to? I'm going to write a book someday. I'm going to call it the dish. <laughs> okay, or because catering. Because yeah. comma catering. Because, because comma. that could also be a second podcast. It'd I don't, be great. Yeah. Like the catering tell-all, there's so much to even talk about. I can about. tell I you so much stuff about the 2012 RNC and all the goofy stuff we did as caterers to like, ha- Tampa's the, the stripper capital of the United States. You know this, right? Like Tampa's no. renowned internationally for their gentlemen's clubs. Mm. And that was one of the big concerns that we had to mitigate, you know, for the RNC was like, well, the party of family values can't be caught outside Mons Venus. Oh my gosh. Wait, you know, I want to so hear all the tea of deceased that I am at that. And that's going to be a processor. Like I'm going <laughs> to, yeah. like that's the next 24 hours is going to be me thinking of like jokes and more questions all about that. Oh, it was a great wow. time. Yeah. Oh Plus gosh. Mitt Romney okay. was the candidate. I mean, he was a Mormon. Like there was so much wholesomeness we had to build in. Like, right. Yeah. Oh my gosh. This is just, oh my Amazing. God. Well, okay. Moving back okay. to social media. 
and sort of where we've gone with politics in the last 10 years. And I, I feel like social media has done a lot of different things, mm-hmm. right? Like if you look at some of the Trumpisms, even you know the Tea Party, some of what has moved that ahead and made that more mainstream is social media, right? Like the access to information has increased, which I think has changed our political landscape in a lot of ways because people just have more, not just more access to information, but they're being bombarded by a lot of different algorithms and a lot of different things, which can be a real plus and can be a real negative depending on what it is and whatnot. So I'm curious as to like your take on how social media has like moved the political direction and like also too where you think that might go from like this juncture, because I feel like we've almost hit this plateau might not be like the right word but an area in which we understand that social media is taking a big role because i don't think like even five years ago people were really talking about having an understanding that social media and politics this cross-section was going to have huge implications and now that we know i'm curious how that might evolve things or you know what your pov on that is there was i think in the last five years to your point exactly there were not celebrity politicians the way that there are now And there were not celebrity newscasters the way that there are now, right? Like everybody knew Barbara Walters because she had a big story. Or maybe if you were really newsy, you knew about Bob Woodward and what he was doing down at the Washington Post, you know, if you were really into it. But they weren't mainstream figures. I mean, Barbara Walters, of course, was, but like Bob Woodward or any of those folks. And now that's like how you, that is the social clout. It's Mm. different. It's not necessarily always based on your body of courageous work or on your legacy of legislation, it's based on your follow count in some ways, your platform. And so when the social clout changes from what you've done in action to how well you perform, you're going to get a lot more performers. And those people have a different goal in mind, right? Their goal is different. Their motivation is different than maybe what the traditional public servant was or the traditional journalist was right and what i think is interesting about that is the legacy politicians do not want to accept that some of their celebrity young politicians on both sides are stealing their power or potentially gaining power because they want to believe that everything like you see this with joe Joe biden right everything's still a gentleman's senate it's still 1980 and we're best pals with john mccain my guy across the aisle right (laughs) this gentleman's handshake thing this like good old you know we have our differences but it's always for america it's always for the betterment of the people right and that doesn't that's not necessarily other people's motivations right now that's not their motivation some of them and then on the news side i get a lot of people are like well you're an influencer i'm like i have never sold anything in my whole life <laughs> i've sold crab cakes but i never sold makeup or anything on the internet that's influencing i i may be an influential person but so is anybody you know who does a lot of these different things and i think we see legacy media really looking at social media now that companies have identified that they can get just as much bang for their buck, let's say investing in having under the desk news come do something as they could getting that spot an advertisement on the Today Show or something. I actually, or nightly news and it's less expensive and it's more authentic. And it's, I think the, the rise of the citizen journalist is a threat to legacy media. That said, legacy media is the cornerstone of importance when it comes to democracy. Right. So while like, someone like me maybe has a really like public face and people will recognize me. The work that 
like the reporters at the LA Times are doing on the ground, like Erin Logan in particular, I'm thinking of, you might not recognize her, but her work is what is forwarding democracy because she has access. She's brave. She's educated. She knows how to write and follow a story. And she's not beholden to a sponsor or something or to yeah. followers or to donations to continue her work. It's funded by the LA Times and the work she does is so incredible. So I think once legacy media and new media can learn that they have to work together because one relies on each the other, we'll go a lot further. But right now there is definitely a a question out there and a fight. What is a journalism? Mm-hmm. Totally. Well, and I, yeah. I think we, I can't remember who we were talking to about this, but the fact of with legacy media, like those bits, whether it's an article or it's, mm-hmm. you know, a clip from a protest or whatever it is, that is used by TikTokers and mm-hmm. other new media. And they, and when done correctly, you know, works together and they both coexist and have to like work together to create a product that hits both markets. And like, mm-hmm. TikTokers would not be able to, and correct me if you feel differently on this, but like would not be able to report on things without legacy media to the degree of accuracy and, you know, verification that we do because they're doing that, you know, bottom legwork or bottom's mm-hmm. not the right word. Oh my God, right that way a, to that say original that, reporting. Yeah. Totally. Mm-hmm. So I, I think you hit on a really key point here of the fact that legacy media does very much have a space within this whole journalism unit. But like where its future is might be a little bit different than maybe it ever pictured for itself. Like the way it's evolving is evolving now, or it has to evolve with new media. Both has, I mean, I think the Washington Post does a great job of that because those TikTokers, hilarious. They're very funny, but they're very separate. So in my experience with LA Times, I was freelance. So I wasn't included in a lot of things that created a lot of just like confusion and like just silliness because of legacy media's kind of like stiff arm to new media. It's like, okay, yeah, I want you. I understand this, but like, but we're the writer's guild and we're journalists and you're not. And I'm like, then, then fuck me. Right. Then I'm not, then fine. I'll take, (laughs) and I'll take my TikTok and I'll go talk to my friends by myself. And that's fine. And that's okay. And like, so there's a little bit of a back and forth like that, you know, and I had, I, I have to say I had a wonderful time at the LA Times. It was an incredible education and just like where newspapers are at and so many people there do get it. And then you've got, again, the boss levels, the management levels that put a little bit of space between new media and on staff reporters. If I were to say kind of where I think the issues are, it's the people who control the money, who of course control the access to information, what projects get funded. And that's always been a problem. But I do see a lot more respect and collaboration between on staff reporters and new media reporters. And I'd love to see that hit up to those management levels where the Washington Post is funding more than just the Washington Post internal. Every single one of their TikToks has to be approved by the editor TikToks, right? Where there's a little bit more flexibility, some more freedom. Mm -hmm. And as far as TikTok reporting goes, there are folks who do original reporting on TikTok who are incredible. And then there are folks who, yeah, do the pundit thing Mm -hmm. where they like will put up a, a screenshot of either a newspaper or a clip or they'll say, hey, watch this and they'll come back and talk about it. And I think we have to differentiate even what that is, because that's a whole Mm -hmm. other skill to be a pundit is a different skill. And that's not reporting. That's comments. So and both are so powerful and necessary. But yeah, it's a little bit more Wild West out here. It is. It's crazy. People like it. So, yeah, it really is going to come down to 
it used to be like what sells papers, right? Now it's like what gets views, views. and and likes and a lot. comments and shares and yeah. all the things. But we were talking before this a little bit, right, about like Iran and how kind of like our both of our for you pages and algorithms are kind of filled with TikToks about this and people reporting on it, commenting on it, all the things. And it tends to happen when like any kind of big news story breaks and something we get asked a lot, Sam and I, is basically how do you vet social media news and like how do you make sure that it's accurate? And we always kind of talk about too how Instagram and TikTok are so vastly different and how like Instagram, you can follow the Washington Post and that's what comes up on your For You page or your, your sorry, your feed. Oh my God, too mm-hmm. many terms, social media terms. But then on TikTok, you know, you are being fed people who you might not follow, have never seen before. So how do you know that that person shares valid information? You know, it's just kind of like you said, like a wild, wild west situation. And we always get asked, like, how do you vet that? How do you know that this is, get you know, accurate information? What are the tips to kind of critically think and be able to consume news on TikTok? Because a lot of people do find that's the best way that they like to consume their news. And I think that's great. But a lot of times you still have to be able to know, like, what's accurate, what's not, what should I listen to, what should I dig deeper into, like, what do you think are some good tips for people? So here's my biggest red flags when it comes to vetting a news source anywhere, but online in particular. If the video begins with, they don't want you to know this, or you won't see this anywhere else, or no one is talking about this. Mm. Somebody was talking about it because you heard it somewhere. Like <laughs> That's one. Facts. Oh, my God. So that's one. Two, there are people, and I've seen this a little bit more, you have to, okay, so coming from culinary in the kitchen, we have this like idea that you're only as good as your last service. So like I could be the greatest chef tonight, but if my service tomorrow sucks, I suck. And my reviews are going to reflect that. And I take that same thing with me to the news. There may be people that you start off with who you really trust, who are doing really great work. And maybe they're just bringing you great articles. They're great aggregators of information and they're really good Mm -hmm. at putting it in front of you in a way that's digestible and fun. And then something happens and you're like, wait, they were off on that one. You should be checking every single day. I Every single day, people should cross check and see what I say. Right. Like, all right, so I heard on under the desk, this happened. Let me go check it out. Let me see if I could verify it different ways. Because there's going to be folks who feel the responsibility to be beholden to the most accurate and up-to-date truth. And then there's going to be folks who feel beholden to build their profile as a social media content creator. And so, again, just like with the politicians, you got to look at what that motivation is. Is the motivation to build a really big account that they can monetize for another purpose? Or is the purpose to share information and this is just something that they're really excited about and they're staying pretty authentic to that? I think anybody who tells you they don't want you to see this, then well, how is it on the internet? Like, uh-huh. of, course it's, of course you can see it. And I think when people tell you, Today, Marjorie Taylor Greene's husband filed for divorce, and that's because she's a bad wife. That extra part. Why? Yeah. Wasn't necessary. Right. And then checking if somebody is mostly worried about being first, less worried about being accurate, just like with the regular newspapers, it's better to be right than to be first. Kind of check out for that. But I, I would. I would also look at somebody's account and say, how much do they show up other places? Like, cause with my TikTok, I comment on other people's stuff. I'm an active user of TikTok as a consumer of the media. In addition to a performer of the media, I, I, I don't know what I would yeah. call it. Look for that. Is somebody just coming over here to try and just like 
throw something up, but they're not really a part of the community, then why would you trust them? If we're going to assume that everyone is a citizen journalist on TikTok or on Instagram, then are they a good citizen? Are they a good neighbor? Do I like having them in my neighborhood? Then do I do they deserve my trust? But yeah, I would say definitely the first ones are like, what does this person's motivation appear to be? And are they giving a ton of opinion as fact? And mm-hmm. I think that's easier than people want to make it out to be. Yeah, because we also love when people confirm our bias, and I do too. Like mm. I freaking love when people are hella <laughs> opinionated about something I believe. You're like, I'm like, too, yeah, God. that's what I think too. And like, yeah. I don't check it because I like the way it made me feel yeah. to hear it. So, you know. Yeah. But I think a good tip on TikTok Except too for- that we t- always talk about is I think it's it's fair to say that you need to do that work, that kind of like extra vetting and research when it's someone you don't follow and it's on your view page. Like totally. Because I think there is a degree of like, if you see it on TikTok and it's like a source you already follow and you trust and you know that like they present accurate information, then like you can consume that and like feel good about it. But I think if you're on your free page and you see something and it's someone you've never seen before, like definitely do that extra kind of due diligence to make sure. But it's all just such an interesting... Sorry, I also don't think people under... I think people are afraid that they don't know how to find the information or that it's going to be hard to read because there's been a lot of work put into making people feel like they're dumb so that they're easier to control and so that we can tell them what this means, right? And that is not necessary. The 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 bills that I read from, the Supreme Court opinions, like they are they you get just skip the first paragraph. It's all the flowery language and get right yeah. to it and they usually have it bullet pointed. So what I've tried to do on this channel and so many other TikTokers do too that's so great is give people how to find the original information. And I think that's really where we're going to make a big difference is don't be afraid to go look it up. And we've told people, oh, would you Google it? Yeah, Google's the most powerful search engine out there and they have the strictest standards for removing misinformation and and they have the highest stakes for that. So, you know, kind of get into it and and learn how to read for media literacy i think one it's so fun to be smart and to be taught how to be smart like do that all day and and check people check people originally yeah some stuff people say i'm like i'm just willing to accept that as fact because it's not that big a deal and some stuff i'm like okay the pullout of afghanistan let me actually look and see if i can find out who authorized that and why they authorized that right right? like it's a little more serious Mm -hmm. totally i was also going to say too it's just it's so interesting because you know, you look at TikTok and everyone, you know, is happy to critique TikTok and, you know, news coming from TikTok. But it's like, if you go watch CNN, what's behind that? What's behind the messaging and the shit that they say on CNN? A lot of money. A lot more money over there. A lot of money and a lot of shit, like everything's so crafted on these kind of bigger, you know, conglomerate news channels. And if that's what you think is better than TikTok, it's like each has their pros and cons, right? But like, Think about that, how what we've been watching for decades now, like CNN, MSNBC, Fox, like they have their own motives and they put out news that is very calculated and for certain reasons, usually money. <laughs> yeah. And the 24 hour news cycle has oftentimes has really destroyed our curiosity in so many ways because it's the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over and over to fill a 24 hour news cycle and to have all these different shows. And it's like sometimes we don't need to talk about something that much. Sometimes we've gotten people too far away from it. Or they're all deciding to rally around the same topic, which is also why I think TikTok is great because it's like you can follow somebody and you're going to get a more unique. It's like bringing the local news back, even when we're talking about national issues. If I'm following somebody like Kelly Kraut in Northwest or Arkansas, 
who's running for lieutenant governor. She's telling me how Roe v. Wade's overturning is affecting her right now. And I'm learning from her. Whereas like on a major news channel, maybe I'm hearing from Jake Tapper about how the Roe v. Wade is affecting Kelly Kraut in Northwest Arkansas. Right. And sometimes, sure, they have like first person narratives and whatnot, but oftentimes those are very edited and cut. It's quick. You don't feel it as much. You don't connect as much. So, yeah. But yeah, everyone's credibility should be questioned every single day. Absolutely. Period. And I and if if I'm wrong and I've been wrong, then I'm wrong. And then I'm like, you know what? We have new information that is more up to date and more accurate. And here's where we are now. I think if you're maliciously wrong to build a profile, you'll get caught at that at some point and you'll lose your account. Everybody does. That's just the way that it works. That does handle itself in a lot of ways. Yeah. Granted, damage has been done sometimes by the time it gets handled, but it gets handled. But if you're getting checked every day, you're just building more and more credibility and more and more trust. And people do learn that they can relax when they're watching you. Mm-hmm. Totally. And I want to just like flag one point on the access to information like bills and, you know, honestly, some of the summaries and whatnot. And like we have this segment that we started on our Instagram called Back on Our Bill Shit. So we, oh, good. When there's like a big headline and there's obviously, you know, bill behind it. We go and find the bill. We find the summary if the summary is available yet. Sometimes it takes them a few days if a bill's just introduced, whatever. We make sure like people have access to it right there. But I think one of the things that we've seen actually from like the press communications team is sort of an error or a lapse in providing that information to constituents as well. Because I like there is definitely a, a TikTok or two I've made out of just absolute frustration at like one in the morning being like, I cannot find the bill summary for this XYZ bill because the information, it's not that it's not there. It's just that they have represented it to the press by nicknaming it 10 different things. You can't Mm -hmm. find the number. They don't put the press release out in the right mechanism or then they put the press release out and they don't link back to the bill. And I just, I think there is a need to change on the communications end of things as well. We always talk about that, of course, to like ad nauseum. But I would like, Love to see that evolve and then therefore see what the impact on social media and all these news channels is once that like sort of catches up. And so that's really just my two cents and slight rant. And if anyone works in politics that's listening to the show, for the love of God, please link your freaking bill and the press releases before I lose my mind. Great. Well, we got to move on to this little White House scenario, which also deals with yes. press and press briefings because you took a little you took a little trip to the White House. I and took we got to hear trip. about it. Yes. So- we tripped. I have been to the White House once before inside the actual White House, not there for like a eighth grade tour or something. But this time we were invited to a briefing on the Inflation Reduction Act. And I had been fighting to get briefing access for like a year now, because why wouldn't people who have earned it get it? Like, why wouldn't I have a huge channel like not to humble brag, but like I have a huge I have one point five million people come every single day to listen to the news. That's my average viewer per day. I have 2.7 million followers or whatever, but one and a half million. That is right up there. When we did the bit with the Today Show, they were like, how many people come a day? Like, It rivals what media and legacy news networks get. Mm -hmm. So I was like, look, man, at this point, I've real proved it. Like, How do we get included in this? Do you want the LA Times to vouch for me? Like, What do I need to do so that we can get access to this information? Because The press briefings that you see on TV, they serve a certain purpose, but they are theater in a lot of ways, not for any fault of the administration. But the way that the press pool has responded to these, again, is like it's exhausting. And so I'm like, can we just please 
get the briefings from the White House communications director. Just when you're typing in everybody else's email, just go ahead and type mine in too yeah, or whatever. Just add it in. So finally, we did get invited. I got invited to the Ukraine one first, which was the digital one that got spoofed on SNL. And they were like, we invited TikTokers. And it was like, oh, the, yes. just yeah. I thought that's a whole other day. I thought it was very funny how out of touch Saturday Night Live was with what that meeting was and who would have been included mm-hmm. because it wasn't like kids dancing. It was like they, they have no concept that this other side exists of yeah. like, you know, civic didn't, That didn't help situate the already. No, like, it was very silly. TikTokers. So I was like, all right, well, whatever. So we got to go to the actual White House, to the West Wing. And the idea was that Ali Zaidi and Deputy McCarthy were going to brief us on the Inflation Reduction Act, just the same as everyone else. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing special, nothing secret. And I didn't get paid to be there. It was exactly the way that the press, normal press, response to things. This is what you get. You get invited, you come, that's it. And there was a, a maybe Joe was going to stop by, maybe Kamala would stop by. We'll see what it was. And so this group of people was news, some of news talk, like, but then Kaylin Green or Khalil Green, who is the Gen Z historian, was there. There were climate activists there. Political Girl was there. Vivian, who does Your Rich BFF, was there. Burns, who does I Am Legally Hype, which is like where she does the OK, so boom, and then Talks about her. what it, oh, I love her. She's the greatest. Love. So there was all these people there and they all had the same idea, which is like, I'm, I'm interested to come here to hear what it is that you're saying is in the thing and then go back and make my own content. I would say that the people in that room were less influenced than before they went in because it was like a very normal experience and it was great to have that access. It was very validating to feel like, okay, you're now in the room. See what you do once you're in the room. We did get to tape, which was cool because it was in the Roosevelt room. So it was like special access to film. You're never allowed to film in there or record and we were allowed to, which was great. And I felt like, I felt like the White House was less surprised than the Ukraine briefing with how intelligent everyone is and how articulate they are about what's going on. Mm-hmm. And more, it had definitely a vibe of more collaboration, more like understanding the people behind the bills as opposed to just what was in the bill. Because I think the White House has done a great job communicating what's in the Inflation Reduction Act. Mm-hmm. And it's great. It's a lot of really, really good stuff. So this was like, well, why does Ali Zaidi work on it? And like, how did he get this job? And like, wh- where does he hope to go with it from here? And why is this important to him personally? And so I thought that was really cool and interesting. And then Joe Biden came in. And I don't care who you are, when the president walks in the room, there is a certain kind of cool vibe of being that close to that person. Totally. And I've met six presidents now and they all have it. Like mm-hmm. this just like, okay, that's the president of the United States. Like yeah. all of them have it. Uh-huh. And he told a bunch of goofy stories that was really fun and they kept trying to get him to leave. And at one point he was like, I'm the boss here. Okay, I'm going <laughs> to hang out. I'm having a nice time. We're going to get out because there was like going to be a, you know, the the White House South Lawn televised thing right afterwards. He's like, we have time. We're fine. I'm all right. And he told a story about when he became a senator at 29 and how power was handed to him at 29 and the way that the former governor had really walked him through it, the way that he called him Joey and it just made him think of his dad and how proud he was. And I think that he thought that the people in the room were going to be like, what a great story, President Biden. And they were like, Yeah. So I'm actually 29 also and wondering when our generation will be seeing that power baton passed on. And I thought that was like iconic. But that was the vibe in the room. People were like, I'm here to shoot my shot, man. 
I'm totally. I'm, I'm impressed. I'm humbled. I'm overwhelmed by just being in the White House. But at the same time, I came here to do a job and that was to get answers. Um, and at the and same time, it's about damn represent. time. You know? Yeah, it's about damn time. And yep. can you also explain too the difference between like what you went to and then like the normal like press briefings where like that, you know, the CNN yeah. reporters go to and they all raise their hands. Like, is that something that, you know, TikTok reporters or social media reporters can start to like enter no. those spaces too? Like, where are we with some of that? No. So there's only so many pl- spaces allotted by the press corps. And those are managed by the White House Correspondence Association. Okay. And to get into that, you have to be, I believe, I mean, we should look this up so I get it exactly, but you essentially have to be with a recognized media outlet, mm. traditional media. I be- Likely you have to be in some kind of union or something like that. Like you have to be a, That's so interesting. a White House correspondent is who mm-hmm. gets to go to that. And it's a very specific job within legacy media. So it's not something that they can add that I understand it right now. I mean, maybe Congress can pass a bill to add seats. But that is why you only see CNN, Fox, LA Times, Washington Post, New York Times, you know, mm-hmm. Texas Tribune or whatever. Like, right. You only see those big ones in there because that press corps is a specific job allocated and managed by the White House Correspondents Association. Got it. Interesting. So this was kind of a way around that. This is what yeah. we're calling yeah. new media. So legacy media is what it is. And now there's what they call new media, which basically lumps everybody else who talks into one space equally. Mm-hmm. And so this was an invitation to content creators, which because they had to be very careful to not use like news, I guess, or whatever. Uh-huh. And it was the exact same information, but more friendly because they could be because it right. wasn't just so Karine Jean-Paul. It, it, yeah. it was like Karine Jean-Pierre. It was the actual people. It was Deputy McCarthy. It was Ali Zaidi. It was Kate from the Director of Communications. Yeah. And so that was the only unusual part is that the firsthand person gave their section of what would normally be a press briefing. That is interesting, especially too, because it's like you're picking the people, so you're picking the vibe. Mm-hmm. So you have more control, whereas as opposed to like normal press briefing, like you've got Fox there, and if you know you and Fox don't yep. get along, What's that guy's you know, name you're again? sort of that Biden. No, I, I was just thinking about oh. who is the guy. Peter Deuce. Biden always. Thank you. Deucey, yeah. oh, I was like, I know it's similar to Arizona's governor, but I could. He's not a nepto. He's a nepo baby too. His daddy was big in the news prior to mm. that, which is fine. He's actually really tall in person. I don't know if that matters to y'all, but he's about five foot. No, he's about six foot six. Peter Ducey is. Huge. He is a monster wow. among men. He's incredibly Impact. tall, which Sam, was tall shocking to me at first. I didn't realize that he was going to be that tall. Wow. Well, yeah. two inches taller than my usual type and so. <laughs> also on the wrong political spectrum. For but me. everybody but, has something hey. we can compliment. I mean, mm-hmm. the boy is exactly. tall. Yep. You know, we we <laughs> yeah. gotta, gotta give yeah, him those, credit where credit's due. Those seats are not going to come available. And I think what's so smart about this White House, and you saw the, the administration before this also, lean on influential people outside of traditional media to broadcast their message. And I think we'll see it forevermore because it is about bringing people back to the people's house. And so it wasn't just news people like me, right? It was activists. It was historians. It was a woman who climbed Mount Everest who was there to talk about the conditions on Everest, world global climate situations and the way that things are changing and becoming more dangerous and whatnot. So The thing I took away from that was the network of people that I got to spend the day with, which was so interesting. You know, these these folks who can tell 
when we say climate change, like we can hear it from all different ways. Like Vice President Harris came in after President Biden and she was like, I'm going to Buffalo to talk to students. What should I talk to them about related to climate change? I was like, why don't you talk to us about how chicken wings are $17 a pound? Like, that's crazy. Like the cost of food is something that people up here in Western New York can identify with. The impact on the Great Lakes, when we think Great Lakes, we always think Michigan and Wisconsin. You don't think about how we have Lake Ontario, the largest freshwater drinking reservoir in, in this whole area. Like that's important to us and recreation and jobs. Like one out of every three jobs in Western New York relies on that lake. But people don't know that, right? Because that's not what we always hear. That's not the easy soundbite that gets recycled over and over again about Michigan or Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. Because New York's decidedly blue. So we don't have to tell their story nearly as much, you know? Right. We should be careful with that because out here where I live, it's you would be surprised. You'd think that you were in Oklahoma in some parts of New York. It's very farmy and very red. Mm -hmm. Totally. Yeah. Anytime I've driven upstate, I'm always like, huh. Interesting. I am I in Kansas? It's you know, it's like, like I feel a yeah. little Wizard of Oz vibe, but yep. it's hey, you know, every state is more diverse than I think people like to give them credit for. So that's I mean, we could do a whole episode on that. Yeah, for, absolutely. For sure. But one thing that I want to talk about within this evolving media sphere is podcasts. Obviously, oh, we're yeah. on a podcast right now. We were on your podcast last week. And a part of that group of people were some podcasters too. And sort of the yes. idea that podcasters and content creators are getting lumped. And sometimes I honestly do think there's an end where you kind of have to do both because you have yeah. to, to do a podcast, you have to market yourself. Therefore, you become a content creator, whether you even planned on it or not. Yep. But it's interesting that those two are getting sort of lumped together because I mm-hmm. then you see like the New York Times having the Daily, all these other podcasts that are off of traditional media. So I'm curious like what the deal is with that. Like why podcasts are almost getting put in the segmented other echelon and I think to give like a you know another additional tangent story to this like something we see a lot is like the way that we get pitched Mm -hmm. sometimes can be totally off and not this is a no hate situation but like a scenario where like you guys like I really feel like people don't really understand podcasts yet like I just feel like there's so much confusion around it and I'm just curious like your experience there on the ground, like how you felt like the perception was around podcasts, how you think that might change or not. I just yeah. give podcasts. So I think podcasts are a hard thing for people to place because they're like, is it radio? Is it mm-hmm. not radio? Is it radio? It, and so that's what I see a lot in this case is like, if we think about the rise of podcasts, it really in a lot of ways was introduced to mainstream America through the show Serial, which was only 10 years ago. And so I think that's part of why true crime podcasting had its first big rise and is so popular because that was the first genre that really like yeah. went to the average person to follow this idea of serial narrative. And that reminded them of maybe Orson Welles and serial narrative on the radio or maybe NPR. Once we got into the more educational ones, they were like, oh, it's like NPR. Or just like hearing ghost stories. Or just like hearing um, ghost stories. Yeah. Scary ghost stories. Exactly. Storytelling. So I think what is difficult and interesting about podcasts is they are so hard to make and they are so hard to do well. And people treat them like, can I come on your podcast and talk to, just talk about nothing? And I'm like, do you, so much planning, so much planning goes into (laughs) podcasting months, weeks and preparation. So I think because it's still this 
new-ish thing that reminds people of an old thing, but is not the old thing. It's put in new media, right? Because Sharon says so, the Sharon says so, Sharon McMahon of the Sharon says so podcast was there. It was huge, huge following on her government podcast. Loved Sharon. And she's there with the lady who climbed Everest and me from TikTok, right? So I think it's this idea of new media and legacy media just trying to put things in a box that they're afraid of or that they don't have access to or that they think could dilute their power or their money. And it's just going to happen anyway. Like it's adapt or die. That's the way that it's always been. And so I think it's in, I think it's, I think podcasting is so very cool and so very dangerous in some ways, right? Because mm. you see politicians that have podcasts right. now and me knowing how much work goes into this. I'm like, mm. that just doesn't seem like it should be allowed. I always should think not about that. Like, right. Please. A propaganda channel. Please, Ted Cruz. Every Get single week I see if I'm above Ted Cruz, Cruz and I am. And so I just keep it going. But yeah, like how the hell's Ted Cruz got time to do a podcast, man? I'm right. telling you, it takes hours. It's a full-time job to do the mm-hmm. podcast. For Even sure. if you have a team of writers and if you have a team of writers and producers, then you're producing propaganda as a politician because you're not creating your own original thought, right? That's scary. I don't know, man. I love podcasts. <laughs> I love listening to them. I love the way that podcasts can both educate and inform but they're mostly to keep you company. And I mm-hmm. think that there's such power in being alone with someone in their ears when you're doing your podcast. And that's what the like goal of the interesting was, was like, I was doing great on TikTok. I wanted to have something that I could anchor into if I decided that, you know, TikTok is a very fragile platform. You have to you have to diversify your life. You can't just rely on that being it forever. Yeah. And I wanted to have this place that I could create that same atmosphere that we have being under the desk of being alone and it being a safe place to learn. And I thought more than starting a YouTube channel or something like that, starting a podcast was the same vibe. We're alone together, me and thousands of people all the time. And I think that's just so cool when you're washing your dishes or you're like driving in your car or you don't want to be alone because you have to go in Michael's craft store to pick up something for your new <laughs> hyperfixation. Yeah. Like you're not alone. I'm there with you. Sammy's there with you. Maddie's there with you, depending on who you have on. And so mm-hmm. I think that is the power of podcasts is to connect people in conversation, to make them feel less alone, to make them feel included, but it to not overstimulate them either. I love that podcasts are audio only. I mean, we do videograms and stuff. And a lot of people will put their podcast on YouTube, of course, but it doesn't have to be. It could just be a place where we create this time to reflect and kind of visit. Mm-hmm. And going back to the kitchen again, I used to listen to a lot of books on audio when I would be like prop prepping food. Mm-hmm. We just don't give ourselves as a society a ton of time to be alone with our thoughts. And so if we can find a friend to be alone with our thoughts mm-hmm. <laughs> on the podcast with. I think there's such power in that. But I definitely think it's something that someone who looks at all content as something to maximize the monetizing of and maximize the message of and like build, build, build. Like yeah. you're not going to get that intimacy that the most successful podcasts right. value. I've never thought about it like that. I love that so much. Well, to wrap up, can you give us little bit more about your podcast what you provide in it as well as plugging any and all social medias and where people can find you we want to hear about all of it thank you friends so you can find me on tiktok and instagram at under the desk news my twitter is my full christian name vitus spear because i i don't know i just was like 
under the, I had to shorten under the desk news. And so I was like, well, I'll just go with my whole whole name. And then the podcast is found wherever you get your podcast. It's called The Interesting. We publish twice a week, Tuesdays and Fridays, Tuesday episodes. It's me and you and the headlines. If you listen to the first 15 minutes, there are a lot of headlines that I cannot give the necessary minimal amount of information on that 15 minutes for headlines gives me the chance to do. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, four minutes or so each. And then we usually have a guest on who's reinforcing something from that headline. So it makes sense just giving us a little bit more expert opinion so that it makes more clear how this is going to show up in the average person's life. And then on Fridays, we hang out, man. Like I said, it's time to just like meet cool people like y'all were on to talk about just like podcasting or the government or cooking or I just interviewed Ricky Lake this morning. So we're going to talk about Ricky Lake and the Ricky Lake show. It's again, just time. I interviewed Ashley Flowers about true crime and the ethics of true crime. It's a place to kind of like, I I'm lucky that I get access to people because of the platform that I built that we wouldn't otherwise get access to. So it's kind of like an all night sleepover. If we got the boy we really liked phone number and we could like just call him all night like it's like that vibe it's like I got yeah. Ricky Lake's phone number and we're gonna call her like, <laughs> that's the vibe of Fridays like we're gonna hang out and we're gonna talk and just sort of relax and give ourselves some space to realize that the world is really incredible and there are so many great people in it and we should meet them and focus on them a little bit more and I think that'll sort of trickle down into the way that we manage our government and, and the way that we manage ourselves as it relates to community because that's what it's about right mm-hmm. so that's what the podcast tries to do absolutely obsessed small and goals we are absolutely honored to be included in there goals. yeah um, Ricky, cool. I, hang out. I do want to ask one last question before sure, we course. go and that is what is your favorite thing to make okay hot dogs and macaroni and cheese i have spent Wait, so that's I'm Samantha's you, dream i think listen to me i grew up with very limited means as a child but the First thing I learned how to make for myself was literally hot dogs and mac and cheese for me and my siblings. And then I spent so many years in fine dining that now, like if I'm going to make something and I'm going to really enjoy it, it's going to be like a box of crap mac and cheese and like yes. some hot dogs. I really love that. Sometimes cut up in I it. I love you know? box mac and cheese so much. It's so just much. so good. Feeding your inner child. That's what yeah, you're it's doing. Just <laughs> you and your little bowl having yeah. a nice time. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Sam is now drooling because hot dogs are her favorite thing on earth. So, oh, what's your favorite was, brand? Oh, Hebrew National. Absolutely. Best hot dogs. Absolutely. Hands down. Yes. It's just we're a classic in the Cantor household. Always were yes. the Hebrew National hot dogs. Hebrew National hot dogs. Classics. Okay. The best. Yeah. Do you put ketchup or no? I'm a plain hot dog person. I'm plain. Really oh, psycho. Yeah. Oh, my God. Psycho. Psycho. Psychopath. <laughs> You're psycho. Absolutely. Yeah, Bull girl. Problematic. Just. It's simple I girl. Know, guys. There you go. Well, thank you so <laughs> thank much you so for much. coming on. This was so fun. Such a good conversation. And thank everyone you guys. go check us out on these podcasts too. Yes. But thank you. Thank you for being here. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. 
You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description.